Good, good trial run. Good job, everyone. <clears throat> Solid take to Jack. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. So glad to join you this week for discussion of government and politics in Oklahoma. Joining me as always is, um, are both, are, not is, are both of my wonderful co-hosts, Bailey Perkins. Hello, Bailey. Hello, Andy. Happy Friday, listeners. And Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What is up? What's up? All right. Well, let's get into it. Last week, uh, thanks if, if for all of you who listened to my t- very brief episode where I just read headlines basically for 15 minutes because it was a busy week. The legislature adjourned sine die, which of course means that they settled on a budget as well. And joining us later in this episode will be Paul Shin um, and his colleague Emma from OK Policy to discuss the budget and where it ended up. Uh, but before that, let's talk about some of the other things that have happened now over the last two weeks. Um, and let's start with, I, I think, um, a topic that we we could and should in the future spend an entire episode or month on, and that is the Tulsa race massacre. Uh, last week was the 100th anniversary. Um, I don't know, anniversary feels celebratory, and this is not a thing to be celebrated. Uh, Remembrance. That's a good word. Thank you. And um, there were events all week last week, including President Biden coming to the state, which is not a frequent occurrence for Oklahoma. Uh, And so there's a a lot of stuff going on. I hope listeners that some of you got a chance to watch the various, um, you know, live streams or specials that were on PBS and the History Channel um, yesterday, the the uh, Massacre Centennial Commission held a National Day of Learning um, that had a bunch of really great workshops. Um, I will put the link to that in the chat because they had some really good discussions that I um, got to, to listen in on. Uh, Bailey, I, you did something with the Oklahoman related to the massacre, right? Yes. So uh, Clyde Bunyan is leading the charge for the Oklahoman for the opinion sections for diversity efforts and other things from um, the newspaper standpoint. And they did a series of um, articles as well as features on their podcast. And one of the features for the podcast was an excerpt from survival eyewitness accounts. And so I had the honor of bringing uh, to life the words from Mary Parrish Jones's book um, where she talked about the Tulsa race massacre as um, a survivor uh, from that tragic time in our state and nation's history. And so um, I read how devastating it was and how bodies were dragged from vehicles. She talked about buildings and homes um, being set on fire. Um, The smell of smoke and other things in the communities and and how so much devastation uh, occurred on those couple of days. 
And so um, we also discussed what that means for today, a hundred years later. And so um, we talked about the the implications from a policy standpoint because a hundred years later, uh, there's still no reparation or restitution for the survivors because there are three survivors who are still with us today you know a century later um as well as their descendants who should have been um inheritors of land and the wealth of the businesses that were thriving and um and other things that were denied the survivors of the Tulsa race massacre. And so that was the goal of the, and then also one one important piece from the Oklahomans um, coverage is talking about its role in perpetuating um, revisionism about the Tulsa race massacre and how their coverage um, a century ago caused harm to black communities and particularly uh, the the Greenwood area. And so um, under Clyde's leadership, uh, the Oklahoman was having that um, internal reflection of what it can better do um, to, and and its responsibility of of sharing um, accurate coverage um, and lifting ethical stories, right? And so um, I was honored to be a part of that. So you can go to, you can just Google the Oklahoman podcast and that information will pop up. They also included stories from Dr. Tiffany Crutcher, um, who was deeply involved in um, the Tulsa Race Massacre uh, Legacy Fest. Um, she testified on Capitol Hill Um, I think about a week or two prior to uh, the Tulsa race massacre remembrance um, alongside um, survivors who are still with us. And they testified, um, I I can't remember which committee, I think it was related to civil rights, um, but they got to talk to Congress about um, how Tulsa continues to be impacted by the decisions that were made in 1921, so. Yeah, I would just add two things to everything that you just said, Bailey, um, that I think are worth, think one thing that's worth doing. Um, so we, um, I was not able to go to Tulsa and, and attend any of the events I wish that I could have. Um, but, you know, like a lot of people, I I knew that the race massacre happened. I mean, it got, it got a, a mention in my, you know, I, I, I knew that something that at the time was called the race riot, the Tulsa race riot had happened in, you know, a long time ago in Tulsa. That was honestly about the extent that I knew of it. And, um, you know, maybe I learned more in school and it didn't, and it didn't take, that's entirely possible. But um, like many people, I uh, have learned a lot more recently as we've approached the centennial as you know, as our country and our communities have been having a lot more conversations around race and racism and what that looks like in America's both in our history and in our present, um, I've learned more about it. But I still, you know, had had a I still had and still have a lot to learn. Um, I did watch last weekend um, Tulsa Burning, which is the History Channel special that was produced by 
Russell Westbrook um, on the race massacre and like the events that led up to it and what happened and what kind of has gone on, like kind of what some of the, the after effects are. Um, I'm not saying that that is or should be your like sole resource <laughs> to learn about what happened. But if you're like me and really just uh, have kind of a dearth of knowledge about it, I think that's a great place to start. Um, um, so I would I would recommend that to anybody ever about about two hours long and just really really powerful storytelling with um, interviews with survivors and it's just very um, it'll it'll uh, it's just very somber but but I think very well done. So that's the first thing I was going to say. Second thing is it is sometimes there are things where good policy is bad politics, and sometimes there is like bad policy that is good politics. But sometimes bad policy and bad politics like align. And I don't know, man. I just am a little shocked. I mean, maybe I should be, at least how, to my mind, how badly I feel like Mayor Bynum in particular has handled a lot of the comments around this and like discussions of, you know, whether you want to call it restitution or reparations or like whatever, you know, compensation. Just, I mean, not to make it like about politics, but that's kind of like what we talk about here. Like I've just been struck at like a couple of his comments this week that really just hit me as like beyond tone deaf, but like, I don't know. I just, I don't know if anybody else has had that reaction. If you guys have had that reaction to some of his things that he said or not, but that was, I've thought a lot about that this week and just thinking, man, like, is this really how, like, some of our elected leaders, including a guy that I have thought of as being, like, fairly, like, kind of moderate and, like, reasonable and, you know what I mean? Like, a, a guy that I think is trying to move his city forward. It just, I mean, it was just very striking to me, some of the things that I've, I heard him say this week. Well, and I mentioned this on Twitter that... The problem with having surface level conversations about race or not having those nuanced um, perspectives on race leads us to the ideas that a group of people should not be responsible for the sins of the past, right? Um, at the surface, you know, that seems like. It's a rational common sense statement, but when you look at the interconnectedness of who benefits from Tulsa 100 years ago and today, and then who is harmed by what happened in Tulsa 100 years ago and today, we see that there's still intersections of benefit from white Tulsans and harm for black Tulsans, right? Um, and it's why, like, to me, like, connecting the dots on, like, House Bill 1775, like, banning those tough conversations on race, those intricate conversations that help us understand how power and how policy and how structural racism all intertwines into um, building inequities today gets us to the ideas of Black people who are descendants from the Tulsa Race Massacre don't deserve reparations today, right? Like, 
you only understand how like because one thing that I brought up in the the podcast with the Oklahoman is that when you look at what has happened over time and policy decisions, like how we built highways, and you look at major cities where most of the highways cut through are in areas that were once thriving Black communities. And we know that when you put highways through areas, it cuts off like business flow. And it makes it difficult for um, commerce to happen in the ways that they did, you know, in, in the past. And so we saw that happen. We saw like how property values are assessed. We see food deserts, all of those things were deliberate decisions and things that like those buildings were burnt to the ground. Families who owned businesses did not receive insurance claims to be able to cover those damages. Governments actively participated in the destruction of people's homes and communities and taking lives away, right? And so while Black folks had to figure out how to recover and didn't really recover after that moment, gentrification happened in those areas, right? So now there is direct benefit from what happened during that time for some groups over another. And so until governments are willing to reconcile that and, and bring reparations or restitutions to bring equity, we'll never get there. And so if we are just going to have the surface level conversations of we move forward on race relations by just loving each other and just having conversations with one another, then we can't get to the conversations about why the apology that um, the Tulsa City Council finally gave after a hundred years later is not enough and doesn't scratch the surface on what needs to be done to bring equity into that community and healing. That's exactly right. It, for And we'll move on from this, but just imagine, listeners, that um, the wealthiest part of town, heck, just whatever part of town you live in, doesn't have to be the wealthiest, right? This doesn't have to be Gallardia. But what if it was that the government and a mob of your neighbors came in, burned every house in your neighborhood, uh, and then just, you know, killed 300 people, didn't say they're sorry, nothing happened. And then you and your neighbors slowly start trying to pick up the pieces, trying to rebuild as you can, a process that takes years. And then the government says, oh, man, these houses are crap. We're just going to tear them down and build a highway here and you get no compensation. And you still have to find somewhere to live. You're trying to live your life. You've got kids, you got, you know, mouths to feed, all of this stuff. Uh, and that's what happened. And to your point, Bailey, that this, yeah, well, I guess this is to Mayor Bynum's point as well about trying to fix something that happened in the past. There are still people alive that had this happen to them. This wasn't like in ancient Greece. This was up the street just 100 years ago where you can still go and walk and see the damage that was done. The buildings, you know, a couple of them are still there still bearing the scars. The people are alive bearing the scars. And Andy, when we think about generational wealth in this country and how people build opportunity, it's often from things that are passed down, right? The government and the white neighbors who participated in the destruction of Greenwood took that away from those black residents. They didn't have that business to pass down because they had to shut down 
many of those businesses, right? They didn't have the land to then pass over to their kids so they can pass it to their kids because the lands were taken, right? You know what I'm saying? And so it does impact, like when people go to a driller's game or, you know, they're going to those different areas in downtown Tulsa, like they are benefiting from things that weren't reconciled a hundred years ago. And so we have to have those those reckonings in order to walk in truth. And it seems like we're not in a place where people can walk in truth because beyond the survivors, descendants could have, you know, grown and move, moved ahead in life in different ways. And those opportunities were taken from them. Yep. Yes. Man, we, we should, let's come back to this. We, more this we need to, yeah, we need to do like a whole month on this. <laughs> um, and hopefully, listeners, you are consuming some of the other information that is out there as well. Uh, before we get into the budget discussion with Paul and Emma, um, a couple of things we wanted to hit that I mentioned last week that the the plot has thickened. I suppose one, uh, not really a thick plot, but uh, it's worth noting that the state. Chief Operating Officer, COO John Budd, uh, officially resigned um, yesterday, two days ago, this week. Um, he's been there since the beginning, so it's been almost the whole term. I know there's been lots of cabinet changes. That is not uncommon. It happens under governors of both parties. It's a hard job. Dear Lord, if, <laughs> if you've been the state COO for the past year, um, you have aged like a decade, I think. I, I saw John a few weeks ago and um, it has not been an easy road, right? Especially for a guy who's not overtly political and really is just like a good governance and like get shit done kind of guy. Uh, so he has left. He was the state's first COO. And I think even before state was elected, I was preaching the benefits of having a, a state COO given the model in some other states. So uh, we wish Mr. Bud the best. Uh, related to that, well, not not related. I just say nearby that uh, we mentioned last week that Attorney General Mike Hunter has resigned owing to some personal issues uh, that were becoming public. And uh, man, since then, he, he's had a rough go too. <laughs> he resigned. Well, there was a pending lawsuit against a cabinet member from Governor Stitt's cabinet That's right. that right after the resignation suddenly became released and now that person is suing former attorney general mike hunter that's right yeah so uh secretary of digital transformation david ostro yes was under investigation for some kind of um uh not libel but like a conspiracy kind of thing um not conspiracy what's the word i'm looking for he was uh um it was almost bribery kind there we of go. Go. bribery yes yeah. one, of those, one of those uh <laughs> those crimes. So he was under investigation for bribery. And yeah, as soon as AG Hunter resigned, he basically rescinded that investigation or ended it. And so Ostro is suing him saying this was inflammatory and uh, derogatory. Also, uh, Gittner Drummond, who I think gave Hunter a decent run for his money in the last election has announced that um, he will be running again. And we still don't yet know who the governor is going to appoint as the interim AG. Do you, do you have my favorite music? Oh, yes, I do. 
right here. You guys know what that means. <laughs> we are officially on this, Pruitt Watch. <laughs> this, no, and this is and this is an ongoing Pruitt Watch. I have not heard any rumors of Scott Pruitt being uh, nominated to uh, replace Mr. Hunter as AG. But, you know, he's done the job before. He's no longer the EPA administrator. So, uh, you know, he, he, he could be looking for work. So I think we should just kind of have... You know, in the absence of a specific breaking news story, I think we just need to have our Pruitt Watch music kind of constantly going in the background uh, un until we know who is or is not going to be the state's next attorney general. That would, who knows, man, who knows? Bailey is shaking her head <laughs> this, and Scott is grinning from ear to ear. Well, and I think related to this conversation of who the governor would choose is a very critical time because of the decision made by our Supreme Court related to managed care and Medicaid. Because one concern that I have is that he may be looking for someone to fill in the role who's going to actively fight that Supreme Court decision or figure out a way to um, get around. Because there's there's not a lot of um, understanding of what exactly it means to move forward on um, Medicaid expansion implementation policy. So we're still moving forward on Medicaid expansion, but when it comes to Medicaid expansion implementation, there's still a lot of you know questions in the air of what it means. So will he re replace the new AG with someone who's gonna actively fight and figure out ways to maintain managed care to align with the law. Yeah. So, so just for re kind of review for our listeners, I'll make it real quick so we can get into the budget. And this kind of deals with the budget. So um, as, as we have talked about ad nauseum on the show, uh, the governor had decided to pursue a managed care model for uh, student care. Uh, several folks in the state legislature were not happy about that. There was talk of trying to stop managed care altogether. There was no legislation to do that. However, there was a bill that was passed, SB 131, that codified and put into state statute uh, a lot of what was in the contracts that the healthcare authority had signed with these out-of-state managed care companies. So that was kind of the landscape until this week when we got, I think it was on Tuesday, right? We got a Supreme Court handed decision handed down that said that the governor actually and, and, the, and the healthcare authority actually did not have the... They didn't have the legal authority to enter into those contracts and pursue managed care without first, um, um, without the legislature having specifically granted them that authority. So what's interesting though, is because now there are people saying, well, the legislature has since codified what was in the contracts and put those in statute. So does that inherently, like does that action give the, the healthcare authority uh, uh, the the ability to pursue managed care like has the legislature now effectively ceded that authority and i think that's an open question you know um i now i would say not a lawyer my perennial disclaimer you know in dissent justice winchester wrote that the legislature passed senate bill 131 entitled ensuring access to medicaid act which recognizes the managed care model so what that tells me from the outside looking in is that discussion of SB 131 was actually part of the thinking of the justices in this ruling. And so that would seem to lend itself to the idea that no, in this ruling, the justices were saying, no, SB 131 doesn't do that. And so the legislature would have to specifically grant authority 
um, to the healthcare authority to pursue managed care in the way that they were doing it before. They'd have to do it through a separate piece of legislation. You know, having the healthcare authority already having done that, I think is one thing. Trying to get the legislature to come back and give them the authority to do that, I think I, I could be wrong. I think might be a much heavier lift, particularly given how 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 tough it was to get 131 across the finish line uh, at the end of the legislative session. So, and there's a we'll lot of lawmakers who yeah. don't <clears throat> do not like, like the idea care. Yeah. of the managed care model on the our senior care program. So, and I think it would be a heavy lift if the legislature had to come back a after a really lengthy session to then come back to a special session. I don't think they would be happy to do that already, but especially to come back and talk about something that they already don't like. I think that would be a challenge to, to move yeah. around. Well, never, we'll, underestimate we'll, the, never underestimate the power of a special session. That's we'll true. see. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, we'll see what happens, you know, um, as of today, 50,000 Oklahomans have signed up for student care. So, you know what it looks like, it looks like Oklahomans actually do want and need this, because um, um, that's only been it's only been a couple of days, and they're seeing uh, record uh, signups, which is outstanding. Very good news for the health of Oklahomans. Um, probably going to have an impact on the budget uh, at some point, especially given all that all that tax relief that we uh, that we just signed into law. You know, as I always say, there's no relief like tax relief. Um, I don't always say that. I just said it right now. Um, so I uh, now might be is now Andy a good time to bring our our guests in and delve into the uh, delve into the particulars of the Oklahoma State budget. I think it is. Yes. Welcome to the show, uh, Paul Shin and Emma Morris from OK Policy. Hi guys. Hey there. Thanks for joining us. Um, well, as uh, we said earlier in the show, we've we've got a budget, we've got a deal. Everybody went home. Where did we end up? Hmm. Better than we started. Well, that is not a <laughs> phrase that we hear often with the state legislature, <laughs> <laughs> especially from someone like OK Policy. Yeah, I mean, you know, better we, what it could have been, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Better than it could have been. Better than we thought it would be going into the session when we thought there could have to be budget cuts, and they, you know, the big issue was would they fund Medicaid expansion? Um, you know, there were not budget cuts um, for a while. I'll be glass half full. Uh, the, there's significantly more money for education, K to 12. There's um, significantly more money for mental health. Uh, a lot of programs that should impact uh, criminal justice down the road. Um, lots of expansions besides Medicaid expansion in healthcare. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Um, equally important and probably the least sexy thing I could talk about. Um, you know, a lot of state agencies have had their budgets cut 20, 30, 40% over the last uh, 13, 14 years without even considering inflation. Um, and a lot of them started to get it back this year. A lot of them, um, this is only in Oklahoma, would this be a victory? Um, a lot of agencies are back to the budgets they had in 2015 and 2016. And, you know, in places like the Water Resources Board, where, you know, we're facing increasing issues with availability of water, um, conservation commission where flooding is going to be a bigger problem, has been and is going to be. Uh, environmental quality, those are uh, higher ed is back to where it was five years ago. So those are big deals. So that's 
that's good. Hey, Paul, I'll just tell you, I'm uh, I'm always here for you on the on the non sexy topics. Those are my favorite. I love it. Uh, <laughs> this is this is the place for the the non sexy budget topics. So. Um, before before I turn to the deeply pessimistic future, um, are there any more any more any more bright spots that you can point to? Let's see. What am I forgetting? I Anna? mean, we did get um, the EITC uh, refundability is is has been restored. Uh, there's a caveat to that bright spot though, um, because it was decoupled decoupled from the federal EITC, which means that. If that is increased or each year as it's indexed for inflation, the Oklahoma State EITC will not do that anymore. Um, so it will lose buying power each year. However, celebrate the wins. Um, it, the refundability has been restored. Can I ask a question about that, about the decoupling? So is it does it mean that the Oklahoma EITC is now like a specific dollar figure? That is codified because it was it was five percent of what the federal EITC was. So yeah, it's now it's five percent. Correct me if I'm wrong, Paul. Of the 2020 federal EITC. So rather than increasing uh, each year, it will just always be five percent right. of whatever it was in 2020. So it, it I guess it really is indexed to a very. It's not indexed. It is a specific number. It is that proportional value. Yeah. Um. So I I'm. Not sure exactly how it'll work, but what it will mean for the you know quarter million Oklahoma families that get the EI. Actually, it's more than that. Um, it'll affect not just the ones who gain from refundability, but the ones who are already um, getting it fully refundable because they made a little bit more money. So it's what three quarters of a million of Oklahomans, I think, get the EITC um, kids and their parents. Um, up until now, that would grow, their state EITC would grow a couple of percent every year because the federal, everything in the federal tax system is in, indexed for inflation. Now it won't. Now it will be, um, I guess it won't be a fixed amount of what you got in 2020, but it will be the a fixed amount of what, uh, uh, it'll be a 5% of what you would get in tax year 2022 if the federal EITC was at the 2020 level. Does that make any sense? It, it no, does. No. I mean, it's it's one of the things, one of those things that like, uh, we're gonna come up with the most complicated way possible to do something that should be really simple in order to try and save a little bit of money so we can give a tax break to somebody else that doesn't really need it. That's my- Yeah, I think I think you've got the basic concept there, Scott. <laughs> um, and, and there's really two, you know, the, the um, that two or 3% indexing you know uh, 10 years of that uh that compounds like interest does 10 years of that you're the real value of your state eitc is you know barely half of what it is today and then um i'm pretty sure that the federal eitc will be increased next year more than just indexed you know there's um that's something that is gonna happen even with the uh you know, split politics we have at the federal level. And every time that's happened before, back to 2000, when we got our state EITC, every time that's happened before, um, the Oklahoma state credit has gone up automatically as well. That's not going to happen again. And I think it's worth noting that um, Oklahoma, having it at 5% puts us in the 
I, top 10 lowest for, for state EITCs. Many states have theirs pegged to the federal rate, but at a much higher percentage, 25, yeah. 30, even 50%. We're, we're top three. We're, we're bottom three. We're top three in the lowest, um, Louisiana and I think Montana and us. Um, and yeah, there's are states that are now creeping over 50%. Um, South Carolina actually has law, you know, South Carolina, the last bastion of uh, liberalism, has uh, has has law has it in law to get to 125 percent of the federal. So you know, here in Oklahoma, you might be um, pulling down three four hundred dollars um, as your state EITC. The South Carolina one will be a couple of thousand for the same family when they get to that level. I heard that was a, I heard that was a personal project of Senator Lindsey Graham. To make that happen. That was his, uh, that's been his life's work. Uh, Good for him. <laughs> so you know, Paul, as we're and Emmett, as we're looking ahead, um, you know, so we 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 did this thing where we cut the personal income tax rate by a quarter percent. We're cutting our corporate income tax from six percent to four percent. Um, am am I? I mean, I, I guess the hope is that that two percent tax reduction in the corporate tax and the uh, and the quarter percent lowering the income tax. I mean, should we expect an influx of millionaires and billionaires to Oklahoma in the next in the next twelve months? Is are we going to see like uh, Amazon and Google moving their moving their are we moving are they moving their headquarters to town? Are we going to see the next? You know the electric car industry, the Ford F one fifty E Ford F one fifty is going to be built in Oklahoma now because our tax rates are so great, and and because of that, we're going to have just billions of dollars in in the state treasury that we can use to fund everything imaginable. Or do you think it's more likely that you know in a couple of years we're going to be talking about a billion dollar shortfall and we'll be having all those uh, cuts to core services that you mentioned earlier. I'm, no, I'm, fi I'm 50, 50. I don't know. I, I think, I think it's the first one, Scott. And also the, na the national capital is going to, to come here because um, all those DC lobbyists want lower taxes than they pay in DC and Maryland. So yay for us. What do you think, Emma? I think that, you know, corporations and individuals don't come, don't move places because of a quarter percent less in the individual income tax rate. They move places because they have good schools, good roads, they can access their healthcare. And we have not proven that we value those things, at least at the state capitol in Oklahoma. So I think in order to actually attract people here, um, it's gonna be way less about uh, tax cuts and way more about how we're investing in Oklahomans. Emma, yeah. clearly, clearly, you have never read *Capitalism and Freedom* by Milton Friedman. You should go. <laughs> you should go pick that up tonight and read it this weekend. And it'll change your mind. I'm sure it will. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, the um, if you think about this historically, um, you know, this is not an isolated incident. Um, back in 1998, the uh, state's top personal income tax rate was 7%. It's slowly been stepped down to five. Um, you know, it's hard for me to see a huge economic boom from that. And, and to think that, you know, what 2% what 
two percentage points didn't accomplish a quarter percent doesn't i mean you know that that it's it's just wishful thinking i mean the um I really think uh, cutting taxes to help the economy pretty much disproven. Very few places that's made a difference. Um, it's what I would call faith-based policy. You know, it's it's interesting because it's one of those things. I'll stop being sarcastic now. It's it's one of those things that I guess I would say two things. So first, you know, people say all the time that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different a different result. In point of fact, that is not the definition of insanity. It's not even close. I think there's another word to describe doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Um, you know, I I won't I won't say it here for fear of calling anyone names, but um, it just blows my mind that as you said, Paul, we've done this over and over and over again. And it never works. I will say that, you know, and I, I brought this up with with uh, uh, Representative Eccles about uh, a year ago, I think in, in kind of a more circuitous way. <clears throat> um, I think that you actually can get an economic boost from from cutting taxes. I think that you can get you can generate economic stimulus with tax cuts. The problem is when your taxes are already so low, it doesn't do anything. Right, if Oklahoma had a tax rate of eighteen percent and we dropped it to ten, that might do a lot, right? But but we don't, right? Our taxes are already so low that when you drop it another quarter of a percent, it's it, it doesn't really make any difference, and it's just so frustrating to me that we have this 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 political and economic ideology that sees there's really only one lever that that the government can pull, and that just that just isn't true, right? If you want to have tax cuts as a vehicle that you can use to generate economic activity in times when there's a fiscal downturn, then when you have an economy that's juicing along and you got a surplus, you need to like maybe save some money. You may even want to raise taxes in specific groups, raise taxes on upper income people where they're doing really, really well so that you have that extra money to fund your services. And then when you need wealthy people to spend more you can cut their taxes and like it's this both and right people say that liberals always want to raise taxes and conservatives always want to lower them i don't i don't know that that's always true but what seems to be true is that you actually like good economic policy actually involves both and doing the right one at the right time now all of this like is completely ignoring the idea which i think is 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 in question that government has like a super measurable impact on the economy anyway like it just i don't know it just uh it's just so frustrating but Scott, i think you're making an assumption though that we're making policy based on economic outcomes and to the point you're raising i i think cutting the corporate income tax by a quarter percent sounds really good on a mailer, right? It sounds really good to say, we're giving the people more of their money back, right? We know that like the economic impact is not going to bring Oklahomans like billions of dollars tomorrow, but it's something that sounds good to the voters. And so I hope that we do get to a point where we're governing by the future, and what makes sense for uh, building the environments that Emma described, right? Having 
schools that have all the things that they need for kids to thrive, you know, roads that, you know, don't have potholes in them, healthcare systems where everyone feels like they can get quality healthcare versus what will sound good in the next election cycle or something that's going to help me move on to um, build supporters for my ideological beliefs. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. All of those things, as well as a tax system that doesn't tax people into poverty while simultaneously, you know, handing millions of tax dollars to, you know, people I won't name, Google, uh, Paycom, Heartland, um, oil companies, uh, the corporate tax cut that is largely taking hard-earned Oklahomans money and moving it out of state because that's where corporate headquarters are and where stockholders are and where most of the employees are. You know, um, Target, I suppose, will make a pretty decent amount of money with that cut from six to four percent, but they're not going to use that to lower prices in Oklahoma or to raise pay for Oklahoma workers. Or to bring or their headquarters to Oklahoma. Oklahoma. <laughs> exactly. All, all it's going to do is, you know, then that'll crank up the, the, um, the worldwide Target dividend by some part of a penny every quarter. I mean, what's his, Bezos? Bezos, he, he needs a bigger yacht. He's only, I'm worried about only him. spending 500 million on this yacht. And as Scott, I think, said two weeks ago, his yacht has its own yacht to serve as its tender ship. <laughs> I'm worried about the tender ship's yacht. Someone needs to care for that yacht. Bezos is building his own private fleet. It just, you know, we just hear all this time, you're all the time, uh, you know, the government needs to. The government needs to manage its finances and live within its means, just like, you know, Oklahoma and our American families do all the time. And I'm just like, when's the last time you went to your boss and were like, hey, could you cut my pay by 10% every month? I, yeah. uh, I've just got a little, I got a little too much extra. So you go ahead and keep it. And, uh, and I'll just, I, anyway. Yeah, I mean, cutting cutting your cutting taxes at a time where the uh, economy is what would appear to be a um, you know a, a nice decent upturn that's going to last a year or two or three years. That's like saying you know I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and give up my second job and um, you know do it in a way that they will never hire me back, no matter how desperate I am. Um, Sure, that makes sense now, but it doesn't make sense into the future. And Scott, what you you know what you mentioned is um, all of the tax cuts, uh, and we haven't even talked about the um, you know incentives for specific businesses. Um, that adds up to like a half a billion dollars uh, when it's fully phased in. A half a billion dollars smaller budget, and that's for five six percent of our total budget. And we're gonna want that someday, you know, two, three years from now when we're all saying, wringing our hands about, oh gosh, we have to cut education and fewer teachers and et cetera. We're gonna wonder, you know, would we have not been better off? Because it's so hard to raise those taxes back. It's politically difficult forgetting the, you know, mechanics of state question 640 and supermajority requirements and stuff. That money is not coming back ever unless we are in such desperate straits like we were just five years ago. And even then it doesn't come back fully. You know, we're on a, we're on a continuous roller coaster and roller coasters never get back to the highest hill. And that's a 25 year effort, right? To even yeah. get to a place 
where mm -hmm. we could raise the taxes somewhat. So five years of real total deterioration in our public services. And, and we haven't even talked about the fact that this, you know, you mentioned at the outset, Paul, that the budget was actually in a much better place than we thought it was going to be, which is 100% true. I think it's also 100% true that a big part of that is because of one-time federal funds that aren't going to be there next year, right? Yep. Like we cut taxes because of one-time funds that we're not going to have next year. So even if the economy is still, you know, juice no longer has recovered further, in the next 12 to 24 months. I hope it's recovered enough that we can get all this money back that that uh, we're not that we're not going to be getting from Washington. Yeah, I mean, we're on a sugar high from checks from Washington and um, you know, when we come down, it's not going to feel good. And it's it's interesting also to think about what they're willing to use that one-time funding for. Uh, they've been unwilling to to do like to invest in the well-being of everyday Oklahomans. Um, but are willing to use it for certain other things. So we just have to remember that, uh, like we've all said, the budget is a moral document and that's showing, you know, what we're valuing as Oklahomans. 100%. And not only is the budget a moral document, but it's a document that tells us, like, it should, in a, in a perfect world, it should tell us what are the things that we need to be able to get the services at the levels that meet need. And I don't think we talk about the budget nor the revenues that we bring in in those ways often enough. I think, okay, policy is leading the way in having those conversations, but as a state, we have to talk about what does it take to get us to the education system that has all the things that it needs to be able to help every school be an A school or thriving school? Or what does it take to you know, fund um, agencies to be able to to do the work in the ways that lift their missions and not just this one budget year, we gave them more money than last year because just because you have more money this year than you did last year doesn't mean that you have all the money you need to do all the things you need to do. And so even when we're talking about our own like personal budgets as like um, individual people, you know, my budget this year, you know, may be bigger, but it doesn't mean that I got all the things that I needed to be able to survive in the ways that I do. So I, I think that's just an important piece that we have to continue to to push on the conversation on on revenue, but even what does the budget mean? Yeah, you have to go back to why we have government. There are things that didn't work out that well when we didn't. Um, and, you know, um, murder going unchecked was only one of the things. I mean, you know, uh, shall we ask Jeff Bezos to pay for an, uh, all of our highways so Amazon trucks can make deliveries? Um, you know, should we make Target pay for uh, streets and for the airports. And, you know, it it doesn't work. There's no one of us that can do the things that we need, um, build schools, build roads. And if you think about what made this country, um, it's not Amazon. It's having a highway system. It's having an, air, uh, an airport system. It's having public schools. The one thing that makes America truly unique is centuries of, of experience with good public schools. And people would like you to believe we don't have those anymore because that fits the narrative of cutting them and funding private schools. But that's not true. 
I mean, we still have an education system that is the real foundation of the future of Oklahoma and America, and we need to stop treating it like it's a burden. Paul, I'm going to. It's kind a treasure. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to kindly ask you to keep that socialist nonsense to yourself. <laughs> uh, in the future. Oh. Is that good? Well, to don't basically. don't even get me started. I haven't got to socialist yet. <laughs> <laughs> Next week on Let's Pod this. Oh, this is with Paul. <laughs> this is this is fun. <laughs> to uh, to Bailey's point earlier um, about our personal budget. So I, as listeners probably know, my mother and my grandmother both passed away uh, about six months ago and, and I inherited a, a small amount of money from my grandma. And we had the same, I think the same debate that the state had, right? Do we invest in infrastructure and like do some repairs on our house and get it painted? Or do we go uh, blow it all at the casino or on a vacation or, you know, buy something frivolous? Uh, and I'm, I will say, I understand the appeal of doing the thing that looks good on the mailer. However, we all know the value and the buyer's remorse you have when you do that, right? Which is why we're getting the house painted instead. <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, Paul and Emma, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having thank us. Good and chat. You can talk about socialism anytime. That's true. <laughs> we'll have more to talk about then. That's right. <laughs> all right, listeners, uh, thanks for being here. Scott Bailey, thank you for being here as well. Thank you, Andy. All right, uh, listeners, hopefully the next week will not be quite as exciting as the last two, but over the summer, we're going to uh, take some time to keep you updated on the current events of our state government, but also to maybe do a little deeper dive into some of the issues we talked about today, things like the budget, like education funding, like what's going to happen with the attorney general's office. And remember that all of this stuff happens in our state and you have a voice in it, right? You have thoughts and feelings about the state budget. Have you talked to your state legislators about it? Like, do they know what you think we should invest in? Um, because they should be making decisions based on what their constituents say. And if you don't show up, they don't know. So take this, uh, take this off season to send them an email. They're not in session. Invite them to coffee grab a drink, something, and have that conversation with them so that when they come back for a special session in the fall, maybe we don't get hosed. Okay, on that note, everybody have a good weekend.